Thank you for listening to this sermon by Grace Point Church. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website at gracepointaz.com, or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday morning. There we go. We will gather to celebrate what Jesus has done for us, but tonight we must gather to remember what we did to him. It's a little bit different kind of sermon. A lot of this will just be storytelling and some scripture reading, um, and a little more of a somber feeling, and rightfully so, as we remember that Christ absorbed the wrath of God against our sin, that he naturally and supernaturally died so that we could be forgiven. Let's begin our remembrance a bit before Jesus is in the garden praying, as he's gathered with his disciples, and as he's gathered with them, he tells them that the Son of Man must go into Jerusalem and, and die. And Peter tells Jesus, not so. It won't be so. In other words, Peter's saying, not on my watch. And Jesus has to tell Peter, get behind me, Satan. In other words, Peter is being called Satan because he can't see the kingdom comes through the death of Christ. And then, of course, on Sunday, the resurrection of Christ. And so for Peter to want to keep Jesus from the cross, Jesus is saying that is satanic to keep Christ off the cross. And as we remember just, just a, uh, several moments or several hours from that incident, Jesus gathers with his disciples after their last meal together, and they're in the garden at Gethsemane, and Jesus asks his disciples to pray and keep watch lest they fall into temptation. And so as Jesus goes away to pray by himself, his disciples fall asleep. And Jesus prays, and as he prays, he cries out three times, asking the Father, is there any way that this cup would pass from me? Now, that is a metaphor. It's a poetic way of saying, is there any way that your people could be reconciled to you, all of Old Testament Israel, and anyone in the New Testament church, apart from Jesus having to absorb the wrath of God against sin? Christ has committed no sin. And on this night, he becomes sin so that we could become his righteousness. God is silent. We see God speak at Jesus' baptism. At Jesus' baptism, we see a picture of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As Jesus' cousin John baptizes Jesus, God speaks, and the heavens shake, and people hear God say, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus and they can see that and, it, and it, it looks like a dove landing on a power line. It says it descended upon him like a dove. And in that moment, we see God's approval. We see God's affirmation. We see God. We hear God. He's, he's uh, vocal and we hear him and he's audible. When Jesus prays for another way, God is silent, present, but silent. Judas shows up with soldiers, he kisses Jesus on the cheek, and Jesus is then turned over to the officials. Peter pulls out his sword and he tries to save Jesus once again, satanically, and I don't believe in pacifism, I don't think that's what this is representing, it's just that Jesus' kingdom was not going to be built by, swill, by yielding the sword, it was going to be built by receiving the sword and through his resurrection. And while Peter was ready to kill for Jesus, he was not yet ready to live for Jesus. Because as soon as Jesus was arrested, someone ran into Peter and three times he denied Jesus. Jesus told Peter, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter says, never. And as the rooster crows, Peter eats his crow. 
The men who arrested Jesus began to blindfold Jesus. They started to beat Jesus. As they struck Jesus, they would say, prophesy, who was it who hit you? Jesus was taken to Pilate, and Pilate was the, the leader, the Roman leader of Jerusalem at this time. As Jesus is brought before Pilate, Pilate interviews Jesus, asks him a few questions, and realizes this man is innocent. He doesn't deserve to die. He's not worthy of crucifixion. Pilate talks with his wife a little bit. He has dreams about this. This disturbs him. He's trying to figure out what is it that he's going to do with Jesus because if he has another uproar, he'll be removed from his post, maybe even put to death, and they would send another leader in. And so he feels this pressure, this political pressure that he has to do something with Jesus. So he does what any really good politician would do. He passes the buck to someone else. And he says, I remember Herod. I'll send him to Herod. Herod was the Jewish leader who was given a certain amount of authority over Jerusalem at that time. So Jesus is sent over to Herod, and Herod is half insane. He's entertained by Jesus. He sees no guilt in Jesus, but he asks Jesus to start doing magic tricks. He asks him to perform miracles. He asks him to fortune tell and play Nostradamus or whatever it is that you could imagine. Jesus keeps his mouth shut. He does no miracles. He does nothing of the sort, and Herod gets bored with Jesus and sends Jesus back over to Pilate. Pilate is forced with the reality that he has to do something about Jesus. So, Jesus, so Pilate brings Jesus in front of the crowd, and on this day, as, we, as they approach Passover, there's a celebration that happens. There is a symbol of God's forgiveness, a symbol of God's mercy, and Pilate, with his authority, could release a soldier, uh, not a soldier, a prisoner back into freedom. He could exercise his authority, um, not unlike um, we see presidents do this in, in our culture, where someone who's been incarcerated gets released. This is, we, we see this. Pilate could do this. So he brings a man by the name of Barabbas before uh, Jerusalem, and he, holds, he, he stands Jesus before the people. He stands Barabbas before the people. And Pilate says, there's no fault in this man. And so what he decides to do is, surely they don't want Barabbas released out into the population once again. We don't know completely what it is that Barabbas had done, but whatever it was that Barabbas had done, likely he was the man to be crucified that day. The crowds begin to yell, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate begins to ask, but what has he done? They say, crucify him. They say, release to us Barabbas. And the crowd begins to chant, let his blood be on us and on our children. Now, this is interesting. This is public. All of this that Jesus experiences put on public display. Imagine taking your kids to their soccer game or going and shopping for new uh, shoes for school or whatever it is, and you're witnessing a crucifixion. You're witnessing the trial that is going to lead to Jesus' crucifixion. And then you run over, you join the mob, and people are shouting, let his blood be on us and on our children. And so Pilate was forced to release Barabbas into the crowd and turn Jesus over to be crucified. So the soldiers found a crown of thorns because they were saying that Jesus was the king of the Jews. And in fact, when Jesus was questioned by, um, uh, I believe it was Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? He says, it is as you say. They put a crown of thorns on his head and they 
twist it and force it onto his head so that the thorns begin to pierce the skin of Jesus and break into his skin and crash into his skull. And blood is now dripping from his brow. They wrap a purple cape or a purple blanket around Jesus to mock him as he is purple as a sign of royalty. And they begin to whip him and beat him with weapons. It's likely that they chained Jesus to a post and whipped him and scourged him with what we would call now the cat of nine tails, which was a whip with nine tails coming off of it with shards of bone and metal or anything they could use that would rip apart the flesh of the person that was being beaten. They had it down to a science. They knew exactly how many times they could whip somebody with the cat of nine tails before it would take their life. Um, history tells us outside of the Bible that there were even times whenever someone would be whipped and they would remove the whip from the flesh, it would rip the flesh apart and sometimes even taking pieces of a, of a man's rib apart with it. And this is what they did to Jesus. They spit upon him. They mocked him. Once this was finished, they put a crossbar across his back, likely weighing about 100 pounds, He's been beaten, he's frail, he's been mocked, he's been spit upon, and he's told to carry his cross. He carries his cross as far as he can until he collapses, and then they call for a man by the name of Simon from a place called Cyrene, and he carries his cross the rest of the way. As they anchor Jesus to the cross and they raise him up, and he collapses by his own weight on the cross and has to raise himself up again to catch a breath, the soldiers began sticking wine in his mouth, ask, you know, asking him for a drink, which he refuses. As he's on the cross, they continue to tell him, save yourself, let yourself down. They crucified him between two thieves. One of the thieves is mocking him even, saying, save yourself. If you're the Savior, save yourself, save all of us. The other thief looks to Jesus and says, this surely is the Son of God. He puts his faith, his trust, and his belief in Jesus. They inscribed a sign above him on the cross that said, the king of the Jews, which was mockery. And finally, as Jesus hangs from the cross, this is where we find ourselves in Luke 23, verse 44. You can look with me in your Bible or you can read upon the screen. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, and a curtain of the temple was torn in two. This was symbolic that everything had changed. Jesus promised that the temple would be destroyed, but in three days the Son of Man would raise it up again. What everyone thought Jesus was talking about was the literal temple itself. He was, in a sense, because in A.D. 70 it was ultimately destroyed. But the first piece of destruction was whenever that veil was torn in two, which kept the people out from the most holy place, which was God saying, Jesus is the most holy place. You'll no longer need a high priest because Jesus will be everyone's high priest. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw, a centurion is a Roman soldier who leads a hundred people, when he saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. This is a sign of mourning. This is a sign of we got it wrong. We picked the wrong man. We should have picked Jesus and let him loose. We should have crucified Barabbas. 
And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him on Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. This is the dark of the night. When you hear people say it's Friday, but Sunday's coming, that means something else to us because we know the rest of the story. We get to look back on Luke chapter 23 with chronological snobbery. We know Jesus has raised from the dead. Tonight, we somberly remember what it cost him, but deep in our heart, we have hope and we know that he is alive and our sins are forgiven. But if you're the acquaintances of Christ... If you're Mary and Martha, if you are the disciples, you think, we f- did we follow a fool? Most people thought, even Peter till the very end there thought, that Jesus would be this political figure who would rise up against Herod and rise up against Pilate and rise up against Rome and make Israel a superpower once again to go back to the glory days of King David and the glory days of King Solomon. But what Jesus came to do was to fulfill the commandments of God and accomplish righteousness and to die in our place in our sins and raise from the dead and establish the church where God's people would transcend all cultures, all continents, where the church would be all over the world, not just a nation, but a church that would transcend nations. While Jesus was betrayed, by his friend Judas, denied by his friend Jesus. He was also forsaken by the Father. Before Jesus cries out, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit, the other gospel tellings tell us that Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not only does Jesus experience the physical death, he endures the spiritual death for all of Old Testament Israel and anyone in the New Testament church by absorbing the wrath and the fury of God against our sin. I want to point you back to Genesis when God told Noah, I'm going to save the world through you. God basically decides to unplug civilization and plug it back in and reboot us with Noah and his family. God told Noah to build a boat and that it was going to flood. Most theologians believe that it had not yet rained to to any capacity and they had no idea what a flood might be. And Noah just begins to obey God. It was counted as righteousness to Noah because he believed God and he obeyed God. And in the middle of a desert, he begins to build a boat. Not just a boat, but a ship. A ship that would be big enough to take on pairs of all the animals and his family. Now the people in the community, you know that Noah had to tell people what was going on. You know they had to not believe Noah or think he's insane or think he is crazy. And I want you to think about the day that it started to rain and it continued to rain. See, the way that God pours out his wrath is he's not like Zeus in the sky that's zapping us with little water pistols every time we get it wrong. God is a God who either has his favor set upon you through the covenant of grace, or he has his wrath set upon you because we have broken his commandments and committed cosmic treason by having things on our hearts, on the throne of our hearts other than God, by telling lies, by coveting, by breaking his commandments. And the way this works is God builds his wrath up and then he releases his wrath on those whom he'll release it. When we see in Genesis 6, when God 
pours his wrath out on the world and he spares Noah. The rain begins to fall. The floods begin to rise. People begin to panic. People begin to drown. People begin to beat on the ark. But God sealed the door to the ark. It was God's wrath. Only those who trusted in God and went into the ark were spared. This is exactly what God did to his son. One day, everyone will stand before Jesus and we will be separated. Those who are made righteous by Jesus to the right, those who are not to the left. All of us will bow our knee and say that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And whether you were smart or dumb, good or bad, grew up in church or met Christ later in life, when you worship Jesus and trusted in his goodness, when he took your place at the cross, you are fully accepted and fully forgiven. And you will live with him. We will live with him forever on the new earth. And everyone who did not worship Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords will receive the wrath of God against their sin. And hell will be unleashed on them and Satan and demons, just like the floods were unleashed on the world when God called them to said they were so bad that, that he's going to reboot the world through Noah. This is what Jesus went through. He didn't just die a physical death. He died a spiritual death. In a sense, he went through hell for you. He didn't just die for our sins. He also died because of our sins. We killed God. I have an atheist friend. I believe he's still an atheist. We got to talking years ago when Facebook first came into existence, and I thought, I'm going to lead all the atheist people to Jesus. I was wrong. <laughs> but I did reach out to a buddy of mine, and I said, man, do you not have the facts? Do you just not get it? And he said, Jason, you don't understand. It's not that I don't have the information that you do. It's not that I don't know the Bible stories that you know. If there is a God and he has that much power, he must be destroyed. He said that is the true heart behind atheism. You may be here and be an atheist and say, not me, player. That's okay. But that's what my friend said. He said, it's not that I can't embrace that reality. It's that if he is in existence, we must eliminate him. And our little theory on if we would do that is true. I believe with all my heart that Caiaphas, the high priest, 2,000 years ago, knew exactly who Jesus was and would not bend his knee and worship him because of his job security. I believe that people did not want to relinquish their power and give that to Jesus. And that's what stands in the way of every heart of any man or woman or child that doesn't want to worship Jesus now. We don't want to dethrone whatever is ruling and reigning in our heart and give that space to Jesus. So Jesus, with his life, was perfect. It made him a suitable sacrifice to die in our place for our sins. Jesus, with his death, provides our forgiveness. God poured wrath out. He poured hell out. He poured fury out on Jesus so that you could trade places with him. What does that mean? It means that our guilt became his guilt. In that moment, Jesus became the adultery that you committed. In that moment, Jesus became the lies that you've told. In that moment, Jesus became your rebellion. In that moment, Jesus became your insecurity, your inverted pride that causes you to constantly question everything that you've ever done. 
Because does it win me approval in the culture? Jesus died because of those things. It is important for us to remember on a Good Friday that yes, Jesus died for us, but he also died because of us. Our guilt became his guilt. Not only does our guilt become his guilt, but his innocence becomes our innocence. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God took him who knew no sin and caused him to be sin on our behalf that we could become the righteousness of God. I've had friends or people ask me, are you telling me that I can live like hell, just do whatever I've wanted to do, all of a sudden grow a conscience, feel real bad about it, and pray some prayer to God Father, forgive me of my sins. And you're telling me all is forgiven. You're telling me that's it? I looked my friend in the eyes and I said, you're absolutely right. Not because we make light of sin. Not because God makes light of sin. Christ was forsaken because of sin. When you are trying to, when you struggle, whenever someone has wounded you with words or with deeds and they've asked for your forgiveness, I want you to remember the agony of Christ, all that he went through so that those sins could be forgiven. We like to say around here that God has no be cool man approach to sin. Jesus went through hell because of our sin. When they, when he breathed his last breath and they laid him in that grave, He drug with him in there all of your shame and all of your guilt. Shame are the things that you didn't do. You didn't commit those deeds, but someone did them against you. It could have been verbal. It could have been verbal abuse. Things were said to you and about you that harmed you by someone you loved or someone you trusted. It could have been verbal neglect. No one ever told you that they loved you. It could have been physical abuse or physical neglect. Maybe you had a loved one who abused their authority in your life. Maybe they neglected their role in your life and you grew up wishing you knew who your family was. Maybe you are a victim of sexual assault. Jesus drugged the shame with him into the cross kicking and screaming so that it would no longer be attached to who you are. If you believe in the life and the death of of Jesus, and on Sunday the resurrection of Jesus, shame has been removed. Doctrinally, we call it expiation, that it has been, been driven far away from you, that it is no longer who you are. You are not the things that have happened to you. He also drug your guilt in there. Everybody has about three of the worst days of their life or more. I've been a pastor long enough to also know that all of those things, it's a short list. And people's stories are the same. And they won't tell anybody because they think they're the weirdest person in the world and no one else has ever done anything quite like this. After you live life long enough and you get close enough to a few people, you realize this is all the same stuff. It's just sin. It's just sin. And all of those sins, the lying, the cheating, the adultery, the isms, the um, believing that you are superior and others are inferior, Jesus drug all of that sin, all of your guilt with him into the grave. And what we believe is that on Sunday, 
Jesus walked out of the grave. And your guilt and your shame stayed and was put to death. What I'm asking you to do tonight is a couple of things. Remember and reflect that when we taste forgiveness, Christ had to taste the wrath of God. In Romans 8, 1, this promise is for anyone who's in Christ, there will be no condemnation for you. Jesus went through condemnation in your place so that you would never taste it. Here in a few minutes, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And we're going to sing with some lament in our heart, but we're also going to sing with some hope in our heart. We're going to sing some songs that point to the work of Christ, His life and His death, His undeserved death. But we're also going to put our hope into His death. And see, here's what I believe. That on Friday, men, women, and children used let His blood be on us and our kids as hate speech. But on Sunday, when Christ raised from the dead, hate speech became one of the very first worship songs we'd ever sing. We sing every Sunday, let his blood be on us and on our children. Why? Because what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray.